either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Busy at the movies this week, but kind of a top-heavy week. Yeah. One big one, and then a lot of smaller, more independent movies to talk about. But uh, good stuff for sure, and we're going to start at that top with a new look to a monster movie. When Cecilia's abusive ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune, she suspects his death was a hoax. As a series of coincidences turn as a series of coincidences as a series of coincidences turn lethal, Cecilia works to prove that she is being hunted by someone nobody can see. The Invisible Man. What happened to him? He cut his wrists. Per his final wishes, you're getting five million dollars. Contingent, of course, on the fine print. He can't be ruled to be mentally incompetent. It just doesn't make any sense. What? Adrian wouldn't kill himself. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay? Don't let him haunt you. Hello? He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. I went to his house today. He's not dead. I'm not crazy. Elizabeth F. Moss. <laughs> does she get the the F? She does. You I know think she you've does. made it yeah. when you get the honorary F. That's right. And uh, boy, I'm with you. I am with you. She's great in this movie. She carries this movie, and right there at the front. That tells you one of the, the biggest changes they've made. It is the invisible man, yet a woman is the main character, and it's all the better for it. Absolutely. Well, I think it's a—they were going to do another Invisible Man, right, with Johnny Depp, until they realized all of these universal reboots were going to be bombs, right? And, of course, there have been a, a million of them, and, and they've looked at it from different points of view. I thought the Hollow Man, that was an interesting one, and, and of course, Chevy Chase did one that was comedic and blah, blah, blah. Back to Hollow Man, the Kevin Bacon. Yeah. By interesting, I mean, it was bad. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> anyway, you know, because that one, just a little a peeve of so many things right away when the invisible man, it's like the, the first thing when you're invisible, what are you going to do? It, it has to do with sex right away. Right, sure. And I know that is a primal need. I get it. But like every time, yeah, every time. But the thing about that, that in particular, right, what, what Kevin Bacon sort of devolved into once he could no longer see himself in the mirror, right? But uh, the the film, the stories, it all it all focuses on who you are, who that man is, and who he becomes, blah, right. blah. Right. So, but it's been done so many times. Mm-hmm. And so it, what's fascinating about this is that it's really a metaphor that Lee Wanell, writer-director Lee Wanell, uses to look at Stalker behavior, abusive behavior, and the cultural need to disbelieve the female. Yeah, because think about that. The, the cheesiest way to do it is if it would have been the invisible woman. Yeah. That would have been the che- bionic woman. Right. I mean, that would have been the cheesiest. Right. But no, instead, it's still the invisible man. But why is he invisible? Yeah. And what is he going to do when he is invisible? And it's it, you're right. Well, it's it's a great that, way. It, it was just such a good way. Of, and nobody believes her. Exactly. Nobody believes her. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's a perfect way to tie it in, not just with Me Too. I mean, that's an no, easy no. way to categorize yeah. it. But with the entire culture of, yeah, of, of gaslighting yeah. and not believing and... And maybe believe a little bit, but so easily let the guy off. Yeah. 
You know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's really well done that way. And it's creepy and it's scary and it's got a great lead performance by Elizabeth Moss. And you were I think you might have said this right after we got out of the theater. I don't know. But uh, it's hard to see this movie working without her. And I know there's gr- other great actresses yes. out there, but I yeah. mean, she's just, she's just so perfectly embodies this character and makes us care about her from the beginning, because it's important to point out that when this movie starts it's the night that she's leaving her husband. Yeah. So we don't see any of the abuse, but we have to believe it. Yes. And she makes us believe it. Yeah, she absolutely does. And and you know, and she... I didn't mean to pun what we don't see. I, no. th- that was <laughs> pun not intended. But but yeah, but there's no evidence of it. There's there are no scenes of it. Right. It's just something that you have to buy based on her behavior mm-hmm. and her performance, and you absolutely do. Absolutely and, and, do. And then you also believe that her character, as characters must. You know, goes through changes. There is an arc, and she has to start off at a certain place, and then she has to go lower, obviously, before she can bounce back. And so much of her screen time is spent reacting to no one, <laughs> talking to no one, yeah. and she's just she's just magnificent. Yeah, and let's say some other things we liked about this movie. Well, first of all, you, you talk about talking to no one, and eventually interacting with no one and fighting with no one and the way that they pull that off visually is pretty good it is it's pretty slick it is i thought all of the fight choreography was really fascinating and one of the reasons that lee wanell i mean besides the fact that she's one of the most gloriously talented actors working today one of the reasons that lee wanell liked elizabeth moss for the part i've read is because she has a, a background in dance mm. so the choreography wasn't hard for her to master okay and so that's fascinating and it's funny that because uh, I was actually talking uh, not too long ago with with our niece Brenna, who was a professional dancer, and she loved that story about Charlize Theron in Atomic Blonde. Oh yeah, is that they had set aside like days and days for Charlize Theron to get the fight choreography for that big, long, glorious fight didn't scene. Need it. Yeah. She didn't need it because she she was a dancer. She learned it in minutes, That's and then they're like, point. "What's next?" That's a good point. So you know, it does work really well. She's not the only one. Aldous Hodge has has some, and and then nameless. Uh, <laughs> Security guards. There's a lot <laughs> yeah. of really well staged fight choreography in this film. Yeah, and also they come up with a cool new way for the Invisible Man to become invisible. Yeah, that the was way, right the, off the bat. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, the way that he figures out how to do it, um, I liked. And also, we spend so much time harping, especially me, on how lazy, lazy jump scares are. <laughs> it's possible to do them well, case in point, this movie. Yes. It has... One, two, three, really, I'm thinking one, I'm not going to give it away, of right, course. Right, right, That was really, really good. Really good. And part of that is because the, the tension is controlled very well up yeah. to mm-hmm. that jump scare. And you don't have a bunch of red herrings, and it's uh, it's atmospheric from the beginning. It's always just a little bit creepy, especially yeah. when, you know, she thinks... Someone is there. Maybe someone's there. She doesn't know. You get that feeling yeah. when you're being watched, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And she pulls that off really well. Uh, as well. And then once the Invisible Man, her ex, starts gaslighting her and so that everybody thinks she's crazy, um, it, it, it takes on a whole nother layer. And uh, it is, it is, it's rated R, so it is, there's some blood involved. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't turn into a, a gore show or no. anything, but it's creepy, it's scary. Uh, there are a, a couple of things. There's, if you're going to nitpick, and I, I suppose we have to. Uh, <laughs> There's for me. There was just a couple of times when maybe a character or two, their their motivations didn't ring maybe as true as they could have. And also, I found it in some scenes, 
the movie really calls attention to the prospect or the fact that security cameras are everywhere these days. Really, they point that out and they want you to know that and think about that. And then there's at least one other time when they kind of casually forget about that. Right. But, Okay, fine. Right. Yeah, I'm not, it certainly doesn't sink the movie at all. But there were just a couple of uh, couple of moments for me there. But uh, once it gets rolling, and it does, it's it's a two hour movie. Um, it's one of those where could they have shaved 15 minutes? Probably mm-hmm. would have felt a little leaner, a little meaner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but at the same time, sometimes when you get a slow burn, boy, when you get the yeah. payoff, yeah, and you do get one here. You do, you do. I love a lot about this movie, and one of the things that it reminds me of, oh, it makes me think of Upgrade. Uh, Lee Wanell's yeah, last yeah. film. And so if you're not familiar with him, he was one of the co-creators of the Saw franchise as well as the Insidious franchise. He writes, he writes or co-writes those films. And then he's in the Insidious franchise. He's one of the uh, nerdy like uh, tech guys. Yeah. Uh, but then he's written Cooties, which I loved, and a couple of other you know movies outside of those franchises. And he directed the third Insidious film, which is not very good. And then two or three years ago, two years ago, I think, he directed this movie, Upgrade. Which, uh, boy, did anybody see it? Well, it, it's getting it's get, getting more word of mouth. Yes. Because the, it, the people that do see it really recommend it. Yeah, because it's one of those movies that has no business being as good as it is. Yeah. No business. It's so by the numbers in so many aspects, but the direction in particular is just inspired. Yeah, and, I was um, flipping channels the other night, and it was on uh, HBO, I think. And so I just stopped. And yeah. yeah, it's getting more, a lot more respect now. More people are seeing it, and they're really passing it on to other yes. people. Hey, have you seen this upgrade? Right. Yeah. But one of the most impressive things about it was that it just, you couldn't figure out quite why, because the, the material is elevated. It's it's not great material. Um, and, and it's elevated with some, some clever writing, some very, very clever direction, and some good performances. This film is the same way. There are certain elements of it that almost seem like a made-for-TV, what-she-had-to-go-through movie. Yeah, yeah. But it's so elevated by very savvy direction, the great fight choreography, and more than anything, of course, Elizabeth Moss's performance. Yeah, you could see it on Lifetime called sure. My Husband Was Invisible right. or something like that. Right. <laughs> exactly. And really at the heart of The Invisible Man is sort of a B-movie oh, no question. type of thing that's got some contrivance uh, as, as an anchor. But you're right. This elevates all of it, mm-hmm. and she is the main reason for that. Yeah. And this, there's some smart writing involved, Definitely. too, mm-hmm. especially the way he turns the whole the whole premise mm-hmm. on its ear mm-hmm. with the focus of the woman, not the Invisible Man. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm hoping, and as I've said this before, I'm terrible at this, about picking what is going to be a hit or not. But I'm hoping this will be. Yes, Because agreed. I think it just pushes all the buttons. I it think, does. Ex- except it is an R rating, so mm-hmm. sometimes... That's going to limit its, its uh, uh, audience. But, but I think it's going to be satisfying for almost everybody that sees it. Totally agree I with re- that. I mm-hmm. really do. So we recommend The Invisible Man. All right, now we've got a string of some smaller movies, but definitely some good stuff here. And we'll start with a film inspired by real-life events in the life of French New Wave icon Jean Seberg. In the late 1960s, Hoover's FBI targeted her because of her political and romantic involvement with civil rights activist Hakeem Jamal. It's Seberg. Breathless made you a star of the new wave. Why do you think the French fell in love with you? They fell in love with the character. They get me instead. And who is that? Who is Gene Seberg? This country is at war with itself. Vietnam, the oppression of black people in America. It's the same disgusting racism. The revolution needs movie stars. She's a sympathizer, sir. I think she could be useful. 
defame somebody who speaks out against their government is a type of persecution. You run around with a handful of nails looking for a cross to die on. You deserve to know the truth. Woman has her secrets. Well, this is the latest example that Robert Pattinson is not the only Twilight alumni who is carving out a very impressive resume since that blockbuster series. Uh, Kristen Stewart stars as Gene Seberg, and if you haven't been paying attention, and I, it probably is easy to miss a lot of her films since then. Mm-hmm. She, like he, mm-hmm. has made some very interesting choices, not always big movies. I know she did the what was hoping to be a big movie, Charlie's Angels. It wasn't, of course. But um, she's had some really interesting choices over the years, challenging films, mm-hmm. more challenging roles. And she has proven to be really talented. And I think, for my money, this is as good. This and Clouds of Sils Maria, right. I think, are the best performances I've seen her give. But she she really hasn't, for the last several years, turned in anything other than a stellar performance. Yeah. And and a little bit like Elizabeth Moss in the last film, she's the reason to see Seaberg. Yeah. Uh, she stars as, of course, Jean Seberg, who, if you didn't know, she was she was really a darling of the French New Wave, even though she was an American. She was in Iowa. But she was from Iowa, but her performance in Breathless in, I think, 1960 really made her a French New Wave darling. So she became a, a movie star. And then, as this movie points out, as the, the counterculture and the revolutions of the 60s started gaining strength, she was on for that ride, especially with the civil rights movement. And she became involved, romantically involved, with the one activist. And, and anyway... As it said in the synopsis, she gets on the radar of the FBI. They view her as a sympathizer. And at first, they really just want, they're really not involved in tearing her down. But uh, as, as this movie, anyway, points out, the more, the, the, the more that she got into the whole counterculture activism, uh, the more they did want to just tear her down. And it shows how much her surveillance and uh, led to her paranoia and her breakdown. And if you don't know, she died uh, under very mysterious circumstances. It was ruled a suicide, but if you look it up, there's there's some question about that. And so, of course, this film is going to delve in, into uh, some of that as well. So, yeah, she is the reason to see it. It's director Benedict Andrews, who is really, most of his resume has been with stage work. And he does, I think he does a really good job setting up the, the old Hollywood side. The very, looks like a photo play magazine, very glossy. The production design, the costume's great. Mm-hmm. I think the problems come in when you work in the FBI angle. And you've got a good cast all the way around. The FBI agents are played by Vince Vaughn and Jack O'Connell. I love Jack O'Connell. Yeah, and Vince Vaughn in a real different, there's no humor in this at all. He's mm-hmm. really dark. In fact, he's out to destroy Seberg from the get-go. Do you know what's funny about that is that when we mentioned this this morning, um, you know, uh, the Phil said, uh, on TV, Phil said, was like, oh, I always think of him as being funny. But if you, but if you think about it. His last several films, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Dried to Cross Concrete, oh, yeah. uh, Cell Block 99, he did True Detective, detective yeah, yeah. Uh, which of course we didn't see, but yeah. I don't think there's it's a lot of light moments in those. <laughs> so he's really uh, kind of circled back to yeah. doing much yeah. more dramatic terms. Yeah, and he's got the smaller part here. Really, Jack O'Connell is the main FBI agent because he's got the conscience. He starts seeing what this surveillance is doing to Gene Seberg. But the FBI angle of the movie is cl- played kind of by the numbers. Yeah. It almost seems seems like Andrews, the director, didn't know how to do it except with how he's seen it done mm-hmm. in other movies. It was very, very cliched and by the numbers. But uh, again, as you mentioned, just like with uh, The Invisible Man, the reason to see this is uh, for, I guess, a little history lesson. If you know Gene Seberg, if you're interested in that, but for 
Kristen Stewart's performance. She's really, really great. And, and the movie is, is certainly not bad at all, but it's, it's elevated by her performance, and that is Seaberg. Next is a movie that follows a troubled young woman returning to her hometown of Niagara Falls, where the memory of a long-ago kidnapping quickly ensnares her. It's Disappearance at Clifton Hill. Alex Mulan. Close the door. You know him. He found him in the gorge. Are they sure it was a suicide? You got a curious streak, huh? Do you know what happens when a body hits the bottom of the gorge? Think swallowing a live grenade. I want to report a kidnapping. There are no open or closed cases that match your date or description. That's it? I'm just someone who saw it. So what? Saw them take him. Tell someone. See if they believe you. So the first, to me, most interesting thing about this, and there are several, and the another one of them is huge, but Albert Chin, the writer, co-writer, director, grew up in Niagara Falls area, and his parents, at least for a time, ran, owned and ran a rundown motel, mm-hmm. a touristy kind of motel. And he believes that he saw a kidnapping. The film, as weird as the film is... Write what you know. Exactly. It starts with this kind of semi-autobiographical, bizarre story. Yeah. And, and what he does with it is really play with the idea of what is truth and how trustworthy are your memories. Mm-hmm. And then and then he just goes nutty with it. Like, he just really takes off with that. And then also ne- nostalgia. And then also sort of, can you ever go home again? And, you know, it's... it's And the, the way that he creates this off-season tourist trap town is so seedy and sad that it it not only fits the kind of nostalgic uh, perspective that he's taking, but it also fits what turns into this very lurid, you know, Nancy Drew-style sleuthing that the main character is doing because it really, in the way that the movie Hannah made you think of sort of a perversion of childhood, this perversion of these childhood sort mm-hmm. of wondrous ideas. Loved Hannah. The second thing that's awesome about this movie is that David Cronenberg is in it. <laughs> it's interesting. You say Niagara Falls. To me, anyway, that's not a place that I ever think of anyone being from. Right. You always hear, I'm going to go there. Right. I'm going to go to Niagara Falls. Oh, you're from there? Yeah. You live there? Oh, okay. So right away. <laughs> no, no. It, it adds, to me, it adds to the mysteriousness of the movie. Right. You're not going to set it there for a, a touristy reason. You're going to set it there because people live there. And right. something weird and something very chilling maybe happened. We don't right, know. Right. And um you know, and also I think being right there on the border, right? Because you're on the Canadian side, yeah. but you're on the border with the United States. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that that suits this movie that like you're sort of on the sort of the because the whole film is like right on the edge of being is it real? Is it not real? Is it memory? Is it current? Is it what's really happening? Is is this? It? And the other thing that makes that really work is that the main character, Abby, played by Tuppence Middleton. Do you suppose she's British? Tuppence. Um, I love her brother's work, T and Crumpets Middleton. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's great though. <laughs> oh, <no>. She's great. <laughs> And one of the and and but her character is just ex, just fascinating because she's and, and and they unveil this little by little, but she's super sketchy. Like she's she's super super sketchy, and so and they, which they unveil little by little, but it adds so much to the story because she's a completely unreliable narrator, and so you never know what to believe, and you never know what she believes, 
and you never know what is true and what isn't true. And but the fact that the whole thing is set in this not only this sort of nostalgia and questioning how how reliable your own memories are, right? But this sort of smoke and mirrors. There's a there's like a Siegfried and Roy type. Uh, magicians Magician, with tigers yeah, in yeah. it, and that you know, there's these carnival houses, there's these things. It just all comes together in such a fascinating, interesting way. And Middleton's performance is just perfect because she's got this like clear eyed, sleuthing Nancy Drew sort of a, a way about her. But at the same time, the more that she talks, the more you're like, oh no, there's just something wrong with her. And it, it's we just mentioned uh, True Detective a little bit ago, it's got that same sort of setup where we, we're revisiting. A case yeah. that happened years ago, yes, and then those memories come into play. So it's the same setup that can, if done well, can be very interesting. Yeah, and 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 it's funny. the The movie it's it's fascinating and intriguing. It's got that kind of a hard boiled, you know, uh, noir. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, it kind of pokes fun at that. Because that's not really who she is, but she's kind of pretending she is, and maybe she thinks she is. It's just, it's such a fascinating tone that this movie takes. And then you, just when you think to yourself, oh, except they tidied it up a little fast, there's like, but they didn't. Uh-huh. They really didn't. And then the other thing, of course, is Cronenberg, who who has a fairly substantial role, yeah. actually. He plays yeah. Walter, and he's from there. He's a townie, uh, been there his whole <laughs> life. And he and his uh, his family, when he was young, they used to scuba dive in the gorge at the bottom of the falls for bodies and wristwatches and yeah, uh, yeah. wedding rings or whatever else anybody else wants to chuck off the right. falls. And um, so he's, he's a, an integral part of this mystery. But now, as an old man, he's a podcaster. <laughs> so he, <laughs> and and I mean, he's just adorable, and he's he's just it, it's and it's another one of those. So many of the the peripheral characters are as unreliable or nutty, you know, as she is, which just makes the whole thing. It's just a lot of fun. It's really a lot of fun. Yeah. So check it out if you can, if you can find it. Disappearance at Clifton Hill. Next up is a woman's panicked decision to cover up an accidental killing that spins out of control when her conscience demands she return the dead man's body to his family. This one's called Blood on Her Name. I keep thinking I hear sirens. Is that weird? Well, if you haven't guessed, we've got a theme going this week, and that is movies led by females. That's right. Women are the lead character. And this one uh, follows suit. And this one also, we just talked about a little bit of noir. This has a bit of slice of noir, too, led by a female. Absolutely does. Yeah, this one is a lot more sort of gritty, rust belt Americana. But it is another one. It's a completely different approach, whereas the last one was a little bit surreal and a little bit, you know, unreliable. This one is not. It's a woman who, as the film opens, there's a dead body in her garage, not her garage at her house. She runs a garage. And they don't really tell you what's happened. You just sort of follow along with her as she makes maybe some bad decisions uh, once this all goes down. And then how she's trying to cover it up and how she's trying to stay one step ahead of it. And there are times where it feels a little bit too familiar. But the fact that they don't really explain anything to you helps keep the mystery alive mm-hmm. in a good way but the so the so then i guess what drives it forward is this character the actor's name is bethany ann lind and she plays a woman who runs this garage her husband now ex-husband is in prison for having uh you know stolen cars and she's trying to keep her son out of harm's way he's a teenager and he's run into the authorities and so she's just trying really hard 
to keep things afloat in, uh, you know, a, a, an economically depressed small town could be somewhere in Ohio. It's just really well told, very small. It takes pl- transpires over just a handful of days and it winds up being just a, a simple sort of a gut punch of a movie that basically is is just all about how sometimes it just doesn't pay to be a decent person. <laughs> oh, that's a great moral, but that's another one, especially if you like the crime thrillers. Yeah. Uh, you could seek out blood on her name. Got a music documentary next, a confessional, cautionary, and occasionally humorous tale of Robbie Robertson's young life and the creation of one of the most enduring groups in the history of popular music, The Band. It's called Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and The Band. The story of The Band was a beautiful thing. It was so beautiful it went up in flames. There is no band that emphasizes becoming greater than the sum of their parts than the band. Simply their name, the band. That was it. Something got broken, and it was like glass. It was hard to put back together again. We thought, let's come together one last time. The last waltz. If there was any American musicians that were comparable to what the Beatles were, it would have been them. Well, anytime you've got a music documentary, music biography, it's going to help if you're a fan of who is being documented. Sure. I mean, that's always going to help. But but even so, you can find interesting ways to tell the story. Yeah. I mean, neither one of us is the biggest band fan. No, uh, good at God, all. no. Uh, <laughs> But this is an interesting story, and even though it's not an acting performance, the reason is the, the lead here, and that is Robbie Robertson, yeah. who uh, is just, it turns out to, first of all, he's 76 years old, he looks fantastic. Yes. I don't know what he's doing, but I, I want <laughs> some of it. Yeah, him and Lionel Richie, I'll tell you what, uh, he looks great, and he's a really engaging storyteller, yep. a bit of a raconteur, if you will. And he had a, a much more fascinating early life than I would have guessed. Yes, I mean, I knew some, th- some about the band, but I didn't know much about his his life. And they do a, a smart thing here by putting his name in the in the title, because it really is his story. Uh, the writer-director is Daniel Rohr, and he really bases a lot of this on Robertson's memoir. So that's good and bad, because you get a lot of access. You get a lot of you, you, you've got a tour guide, if you will, uh, Robbie Robertson himself, telling you about his history and then how he got together with these these musicians. And, you know, when they were the Hawks and they played with Dylan, and then they became the band and everything else. But at the same time, you've got basically one voice yeah. uh, speaking. Now, the sad fact is that three of the original five members of the band are dead. But Garth Hudson, who was a keyboard player and played some other things, um, he's not spoken to at all. And that leaves a big hole. It yeah. seems like you should at least, if he didn't, at least address it. Yeah, if he didn't want to be involved, okay. But maybe Robertson could work that into one of his stories. But right. just the fact that he's not there and giving any sort of counterpoint, um, you get some old interviews with, especially with Levon Helm, who I guess was uh, really uh, the best friends with Robertson. You get some old interview footage from him. But it, this is basically Robertson's story and his viewpoint of how it went down. Still, it's a very interesting ride. If you're not fans, you do get uh, a new respect for the musicianship because they were one of those rare bands where the main personality was not the lead singer. It was the guitarist, Robbie Robertson. And 
I didn't know that. Yeah. So there you go. Going into this documentary, I didn't know that. There's a lot to learn. Yeah, exactly. And you get a new appreciation for his work. And speaking of the singers, Levon Helm did a lot of the singing. And when they play some of the live cuts, he really was a really strong, powerful singer. So you do get appreciation for that. And they, they roll out a succession of just music legends. You got your Springsteen and Van Morris and Eric Clapton uh, on and on about what this music meant to them. Mm-hmm. And so you get, and then you get Martin Scorsese, who of course directed The Last Waltz, right, one of the right. greatest music documentaries ever, the, the band in concert. He's an executive producer here, and he is actually talked to as well. And it's fascinating as he talks about how he decided to film them on stage for that concert. And so you get a little intimacy there as well on on filmmaking and how to. And frame a, a band in, in a certain light, and you get some great old footage of when they were working with Dylan, and he, he they, they were there, they were his backing band when Dylan went electric, and mm-hmm. had these these uh, crowds booing him, and he's telling <laughs> him not to boo him. Uh, it's, so you get some real great archival footage and some nice insight, but it, as as one sided as it is, but still, I thought it was a very effective. Uh, music biography, music documentary, even not even if you're not the biggest fan of the band. And if you are, well, then I would say this is can't-miss stuff. And it's called Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. And that takes us to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Big week. Ooh, big week. We have got, uh, well, we've. I think we've said this before, but we have not come across one person that doesn't like Knives Out. Exactly. If you've seen it, you've liked it pretty much. Yeah. And it's totally understandable. It's so entertaining. It's so entertaining. It's so well put together. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. And part of it, I feel like, is they all seem like they're having a blast. <laughs> they do. They really do. And I'm sure you've heard of it. It was nice to see it be such a big hit yeah. that they're already working on another one. And uh, it was. it's just It's just a gas. Mm-hmm. It is just a gas. Mm-hmm. And it's out this week. Frozen 2, obviously, doesn't need much of an introduction. Nope. It was. Uh, I thought it was a step down from Frozen 1, a lot of the same stuff. You, you, you had some nice welcome humor from uh, the snowman. Sure. Uh, just everything about it was kind of a half step down from Frozen 1. Yeah, but if you, know you enjoyed the first one or you're obligated to watch there this you one, go. it's if available now. If your kids are saying, when are you going to bring home Frozen 2, here you go. So enjoy that. Also, uh, a documentary called Scandalous, the untold story of the National Enquirer. That pretty much sums it up. And it is an interesting it story. Is, it is. It really is, especially if you just hear the National Enquirer and think about, oh, it's just a rag full of lies. I get you. I understand why you would think that. And they uh, they embrace that. They, yeah, It's but this is an interesting story about how maybe that has not always been the case. Mm-hmm. And then it takes you to the place of, especially in today's world of fake news, um, it really brings it up to a uh, a current present day yeah. type of message that uh, I think you'll find very very interesting because who doesn't know who's not aware of the National Enquirer but uh, it's a really interesting story. Uh, it's called Scandalous that is out now. Also, Nicholas Cage and H.P. Lovecraft come together. Color Out of Space is out now. This is we liked it. We didn't love it right because we've said before we're not big Lovecraft fans no. at all. But but this is a nice 
telling of one of his stories. It is, because one of the problems with Lovecraft, people always are trying to make his films, but they're very, very hard to make because of the way he wrote, because mm-hmm. if they're always about an image that you can't really describe, a sound right. that you can't really describe, it's a like color the... that you can't really describe. Well, if you're filming it, you, you it's got to be there. It's like the movies over the years that have tried to show heaven right. on film. Well, right. how are you going to do that? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that this film does a better job of capturing the essence of Lovecraft than uh, quite possibly any direct adaptation that I've ever seen. And, of course, you have Cage being nutty. (laughs) I agree. Now, there are definitely some WTF moments for sure. As well uh, there should be. As well there should be. But, yeah, we thought it was was pretty decent ride. Mm -hmm. And Brainiac Transmissions After Zero is out on home video this week. This is an absolutely excellent documentary about the Dayton, Ohio-based Dayton in the house. That's right. Uh, like post-punk, pre-grunge, sort of uh, outstanding indie rock band, Brainiac, who um, are a lot more, you find this about a lot of very indie bands, they're a lot more groundbreaking than they are popular. <laughs> like There are a lot more bands who know Brainiac than people who right. know Brainiac, uh, which the, the movie delves into. I mean, you, they talk to a lot of, of musicians who were inspired by it, but it's a fascinating story and a really well-made movie. And yeah, go Dayton. <laughs> there you go. Looking ahead to next week, more quantity, hopefully quality. Pixar, right. Pixar's latest Onward mm-hmm. is out next week. Also, Emma, which we already know is great. Uh, the Way Back, the new one from Ben Affleck. I don't yeah, know. he's a basketball coach. Yeah. Uh, all right, we shall see. Oh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Glorious. Finally. Now, this is one from actually last year. Yeah, it is. Uh, but great. It's yeah. finally getting a wider release yeah. uh, next week, and uh, we really loved it. And also Greed, the British film Greed, and the uh, another indie called Premature. Okay, we'll talk about those next week. In the meantime, uh, what do you think about Invisible Man or any of the others that we talked about? Or maybe you are the one person who didn't like Knives Out. <laughs> If so, let's hear from you. <laughs> Easiest way to uh, get a hold of us, keep the conversation going, is on Twitter. You can find us at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Instagram, Facebook, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website with all of our written reviews and our other horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club, easily found at madwolf.com. So until next week, we hope you will check it out, and we always appreciate you stopping by the screening room. Do us a favor, if you would, and just as... Walter, uh, David Cronenberg says, as the podcaster in that movie, please subscribe, rate, and review. (laughs) That's the first thing I thought of when he said he was a podcaster. (laughs) Got to work that in there. So, until then, until next week, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.